part of the point of the Players' Tribune is that, or I think maybe the beauty of it is that we never quite know what we're getting into with these stories. We're sort of trying to get those stories that maybe these athletes have only ever told their best friends or their confidants, right? Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Peter Houston. And it's just a boys edition this week because Woo! Esther <laughs> because Esther is off seeing some family. So we're going to be taking you through, well, what is effectively a week of short and interesting stories rather than doing a main feature. The clip you heard that the top of the show was from this week's interview with Sean Conboy, executive editor at the Players Tribune. Players Tribune is a sports-focused site that publishes first-person stories from professional athletes. Uh, you might remember Gareth Southgate's Dear England open oh, letter ahead of the Euros. Yeah, 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 that was really good. That, that was a Players Tribune. So I asked Sean about the process they use to get content from elite athletes, why the site doesn't shy away from difficult stories, particularly around mental health and even recently human rights issues around the Qatar World Cup. It was a great interview. Good. I'm delighted to hear that. And I'll be looking forward to listening to that when I'm doing the edit as well. <laughs> Before that, though, we're going to take a quick tour through all the news in brief because we were saying earlier that doesn't, there seems to be a bit of a fallow period now. There's been a load of really interesting stories, but nothing really big has taken place. You know, we could we could say that, you know, the, the Ben YT investigation into Axel Sprunger is a big story. But it's oh, not necessarily Facebook's rebrand. <laughs> you sound so enthusiastic to talk about Facebook again. Because <laughs> it's gonna change anything, is it? Well yeah. That's the thing. But so what we've effectively done this week is we've compiled a list of connected stories. So that should hopefully flow one into the other. So we can actually have a <laughs> God, a I really love your good, optimism. <laughs> a really good discussion that's a bit of a holistic look at what's going on in the media world rather than taking a look at one main thing. So to begin with, the Financial Times has filed a £34.5 million loss for the year. You'll be surprised to know, I'm sure, that COVID is apparently the main culprit. So crucially, while it's effectively saying that this is you know a huge loss internally in the UK, it's stating that there's a small profit globally. Which I was a little bit surprised with this, just because I thought the FT was doing really, really well. And, you know, if you look at it, the events probably got absolutely decimated and, you know, commuting sales, which are probably a big deal for the FT. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I know subscriptions kind of brought them back up. I was just still a little surprised by that, so I don't know. Well, we've been championing them championing them for quite some time because yeah, the editorial coverage of the pandemic and everything. So it's it's a little bit, I suppose, a bit of a dichotomy between what they've been doing in editorial and what they've been doing in a business sense. But it does seem like they've been adapting relatively quickly. So their digital events income, and, and I know that they, along with most publishers, have been rapidly experimenting with that. Uh, a very robust advertising performance, which you'd expect when you've got the kind of the trusted environment like the FT, and branded content sales are up 31% year on year. I don't know what you say when even something as venerable as the FT is going to be this hit. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just it's quite a good little story to illustrate just what a shit show last year was. Yeah. Hey, what the, the thing, I mean, I'm not an accounts guy <laughs> at all. 
I think what's interesting is if you look at the change in their revenue, the revenue is down 7%. Um, and the difference that made to the bottom line is in, it's just incredible. Mm. You know, they went from a profit to, to this, I don't know, £20 million operating loss. Uh, next on Doc. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting one, even if it's only because it gets slammed in Eric Clapton. <laughs> Uh, rolling score, rolling, rolling scone, <clears throat> rolling scone, scone, rolling scone. Rolling Stone is set to reinvent itself. This is interesting because it got bought, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's got this new editorial edict which instructs its writers to be more immediate and more visceral, less fawning. Um, and the story that used it's Maggie Sullivan, I think it's writing this in the mm -hmm. Washington Post, gets ripped into the story she's writing about is about Rolly Stone getting ripped into Eric Clapton for his oh, vaccine denying lockdown skeptic bullshit. <laughs> yeah, the phrase they use is the piece also told Clapton's history of full tilt racist rants. Yeah, which... he's a, he's been outed as a, a it, it was like because I, I, I didn't know about that until felt like relatively oh, recently yeah. and i saw like footage of him going like yeah you know pal rivers of blood it was all yeah yep, right yep, yep. he's also not as good as a guitar player as, <laughs> as, let's face it guitar voices but anyway so that this idea that they are now going to be less fawning is an interesting one because historically that's how a lot of music titles in particular have been getting access yeah, and, and you know what? Forget Eric Clapton. I think they've got a tough job here. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, I'm massively skeptical about icons trying to reinvent themselves as a slightly different kind of icon, mm. magazine icons. You know, I remember when NME, how many times have I banged on about <laughs> Rihanna being Rihanna. on the cover? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and and it's funny because if the opening of the of Maggie Sullivan's story is them talking about Rolling Stone uh Twitch streaming some Korean BT what are they called? They're not BTS. It's um is that not BTS? No, it's anyway, P1 Harmony. Anyway, some K-pop band. And and you know, whatever. I'm a man of a certain age and I'm just thinking, fuck me. Really? <laughs> We can have a go at Eric Clapton for being a racist, but we're still Twitch streaming K-pop. You know, make your mind up, guys. You, you, what are you? Who are you? And I think that's the problem. Well, I'm just happy that they're having a go at Eric Clapton and any of the other uh, COVID-denying numpties. Yeah. Van Morrison. What's his name? Ian Brown. Anyone oh, else? Oh, yeah, God. I forgot about Ian Brown. Meanwhile, Facebook in France has agreed to pay newspapers for content. So France has always been tougher on protection of its national media than most of its counterparts in Europe. So we've spoken about that at length in terms of making sure that Netflix carries a certain proportion of French content, for instance. But now it's struck a not quite Australia-like deal, which means that Facebook is going to be paying newspapers directly for licensing its contact, uh, content. Um, however... There's a very well-written piece in Press Gazette this week, which we shared in the newsletter, which effectively doubles down on everything that we have said in the past, because we think direct payments to publishers from the duopoly is a bad idea for a number of reasons. So I don't know if we even have the energy to talk about Facebook and payments to publishers again this week. <laughs> that is where we need Esther. She still gets exercised about that stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it is a bad idea because, as we've said so many times, it cuts out the little guys and the, the plurality of media is always going to suffer. But So here's the, here's the kind of interesting thing about this, and here's why I think it matters that it's France that's doing it. They have provision in there for the smaller publishers to do this, whereas the Australia deal doesn't. So oh, there's, we've already seen that mm-hmm, there's a bunch of the kind of the smaller publishers in Australia who have already lost out on a deal. They can't yeah. get around the negotiating table with Google and Facebook. We, we always argued that was going to happen. It's a bad idea. You know, we have basically got yelled down by people saying, no, it won't happen. And then it did. Vive la France. Exactly. Très bien. Meanwhile, Facebook. I'm so bored of talking about Facebook. It's just, oh, it's just such a hellscape. <laughs> Uh, the news tab, they're doubling down on the news tab. Mm. New data from Axios says the news tab contributes over 30% of Facebook news link referral traffic in the US and UK and Germany. Pfft, I don't know. I, have you ever actually seen the news tab? Have you been no, on it? No, but I, I very, the, the last time I used Facebook was... Um, ah, that would be explaining it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I posted something on it yesterday because I did that charity stream, but then before oh, yeah. that, it was like months since I'd last gone on it. So I don't know. It's, that's interesting because that's the last time I used Facebook in any regularity was for a charity running thing. Mm. So Facebook's maybe just becoming a big charity donation site, which would be good. There are worse ways for it to go out. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, this is... This... Effectively, they're saying this is proof that the news tab is better for publishers who exist on there. It means that you don't get lost among the rest of the news feed. You avoid that um, context collapse that comes from appearing next to your mad uncle's racist rants, probably your uncle Eric. And there's just a bunch of benefits they're saying. And The Guardian has appointed Deputy Opinion Editor and Columnist Joseph Harker as its new Senior Executive for Diversity and Development, which is excellent. Um, we've seen a lot of the publishers kind of very publicly um, get involved now in pledging to improve diversity and yeah. inclusion. Uh, Reach just signed up to the 30% club to make sure that it's got you know, 30% women on its board and management. So it's good that they've actually got Joseph in now to, to have a remit to do that. Because the quote from him on this was good. Was, mm. was well, good. That's such a patronizing <laughs> But it was interesting that you know he he's he was he wasn't talking about race, he was talking about everything. He was saying that he just wants a garden to be a place that welcomes everyone. And I think that's that's the point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That he's saying he just wants it to be a welcoming place. It's really strong. I love that. Well, there's the there's there's another great quote in there actually where he's saying. Um, one thing that the whole episode shows is that for some British editors, box ticking is fine. Dot dot dot. Don't expect any serious challenge to racism in the newsrooms anytime soon. And one of the things that um, people have been saying for years now is that unless you have a public remit and you have public goals which you have to meet, you, there's not going to be any progress because you can easily backslide privately. Um, obviously, that doesn't always work. So if you look at what's happened with the gender pay gap including at The Guardian, there has been, you know, a little bit of backsliding there. But good that they have this kind of public-facing commitment now and that you can actually measure it in terms of metrics because otherwise, how do you, you know, how do you let people know that you're succeeding or failing? Yeah, as long as you, by putting someone on it, you're, you're, you're kind of, depending on who the person is, you, you, you've got a clear commitment to because someone has the right to call you out. Although... 
if we look at some other organizations <laughs> what a segue uh the voice is reporting that veteran diversity campaigner marcus Ryder was blocked from a role at the bbc because dg tim davy was worried about his previous campaigning for diversity because of course if you campaign for good things for social justice you clearly can't be impartial you can't be trusted if you are you know campaigning for there to be equality only the other way around can you be truly impartial it's, i mean this, the next story the next story on this ties straight and i was going to say yeah let's just go go for it so it's also apparently fine though that a senior tory mp demanded that laura kunzberg's replacement as political editor at the BBC should be, quote, pro-Brexit, which is about as big a betrayal of that impartial remit as you can possibly find. But it's like, you've got to be impartial unless it's our partial, and then you can be as partial partial as you want. want. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's bad, and it's a bad, that Marcus Ryder one is a particularly bad look in light of what happened with Jess Brammer. Uh, would you remember the controversy around that and then have reportedly yeah. people internally were worried about any any future appointments which could throw up what they were calling like the brammer problem not really a problem at all you can you can be impartially reporting and hold private opinions everybody does that anyway it's just it, it doesn't speak well of the bbc's commitment to a plurality of voices Absolutely if they not. won't have if they won't even no. you know countenance this it definitely doesn't i mean i've so many times on here, I've argued for the BBC. I've berated Esther for not paying, <laughs> having for not having a TV license. Um, I'd love the BBC. I think BBC is one of the with the NHS is one of the things that makes this country different from other places. Mm-hmm. But it has to be said that these twats are slowly but surely trying to dismantle it, and it's yeah. just awful. The steady drip, drip, of just like everything that was good about them special actually made them fit for purposes of being eroded by this kind of yep. culture war nonsense okay let's get a fun story back on the docker playboy does that even still exist yeah not only does it exist we spoke about it not too long ago because they did a, a huge push for well obviously they've always licensed themselves out but they were doing a huge push for relevance again so mm-hmm. we spoke about them not too long ago and this is kind of another example of that well, and another bid to be relevant, Playboy has launched a range of NFTs. That's non-fungible tokens, kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Old rabbitars, holy crap. <laughs> they feature a unique Playboy bunny from a set of 11,953. That's 11,953. Um, and you only have to pay, you ready? 0.1953 Ethereum. <laughs> what the hell does, what does this even mean? <laughs> the thing I don't understand about this, right, is that the, the surely the appeal of an NFT is relatively <laughs> the thing like, you don't understand. <laughs> yes. But the, like the appeal of the NFT is obviously avatars are for whatever reason seen as kind of the the one of the big draws of NFTs. You can actually have your own personal avatar, which nobody else can copy. But the idea that there are now close to 12,000 of these surely undercuts any exclusivity. Except for the other 11,952 people. Yeah, which I don't... I, so I, I understand why they've done it. I think that that run of you know, unique rabbitars seems to be way too big for it to be... 
I'm sure that they'll make a you know fair amount of money from it. They'll rake in a bunch of crypto, but it's like eleven thousand nine hundred limited editions of a print. Yeah, exactly. Except like, that anyone can copy that print because it's digital. I would love to see how Where many of those get buried in a landfill in, in Kansas when they're not actually sold. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, we're writing about this for this year's Media Moments report, right? Mm-hmm. We've got an NFT chapter. Are yeah. you writing it? I am. So this. <laughs> <laughs> so podcast innovation is continuing. Spotify has announced its opening access to its video podcasting feature to creators. Previously, it was locked down to a select group of effectively a, tri- a pilot. Um and it's perhaps spurred by YouTube's recent investment in video podcasts. Esther has very kindly let us know that it's YouTube's a huge destination for podcasts. Uh, I tend to watch some there as well. And yeah, an interesting one that Spotify has now seen that come to potentially eat its lunch and it's just gone, now we do it. Now we got it first. When you just said it was limited to a pilot, I had this image <laughs> of a guy in a pilot's hat and a in a uniform like he was the only one that could do video stuff on spotify commercial pilots who yeah. have hours sat in the cockpit are wasting their time by not doing yeah, podcasts should be doing video podcasts. yeah absolutely um, um I, video podcasting though seriously well what's we're the... gonna have to do this in video no we're not doing peter i'm wearing a dressing gown there's no way <laughs> that we're doing this in video I'm wearing a hat because Esther made fun of my hair last week. And I'm wearing a hat because otherwise this headphone strap rubs on my bald head. <laughs> uh, finally, an update to our main story last week. After we spent much of the episode praising Axel Springer for its handling of the political acquisition, it turns out that uh, <laughs> reports of a paywall launch were taken out of context. Um, and it was immediately hit by a scandal after Ben Smith at the New York Times revealed a culture of inappropriate behaviour at some of the titles in the group, um, which has led to, which led to the editor in chief of Built being suspended. I also have to hold my hand up and say I was talking utter bollocks. Oh, this is build. This is your build thing about. You know about niche publishers in the Axel Springer group. Mm. I was trying to make a point, and it was a rubbish point. <laughs> uh, well, let me, uh, yeah, let me take you through the, the the timeline of this. We recorded on the Sunday. It was edited, and I think the episode was good to go by about seven p.m. At eighteen minutes past ten that night, I sent our WhatsApp group just the. I just said, "Guess what?" and then a link to the <laughs> NYT story. So this was less than like three hours since the episode was put to bed and good to go. Esther then replied with a see no evil monkey emoji. And then you said, I think I said it wasn't perfect. So already getting those, already banking those excuses for it. Let's, but, let's mitigate a disaster yeah. coverage. Yeah, so, so here's my question for you then. Of the stories that we have reported on today, which is mm-hmm. going to turn out to be bollocks in five minutes after we end the recording? Rolling Stone is actually very pro-Clapton. Yeah, they'll do like a phoning piece because he's put a new album out <laughs> and of lockdown songs like Van Morrison did. This week's guest is executive editor at the Players Tribune, Sean Conboy. I asked Sean how they commission a player written piece 
about their social distribution, the split between text and multimedia. But first, I asked them to describe the Players' Tribune for anyone that hasn't heard of it. You know, I think uh, people ask me that question all the time, and I, I uh, never quite know how to answer it because, uh, you know, I think there's been so many different eras of, uh, of this place and, and kind of what we've done. But to make a long story short, our company was actually founded uh, by a group of athletes uh, who some of the kind of best uh, and, you know, most respected kind of names in, uh, in, in the sports world. So our founder was actually uh, Derek Jeter. Uh, who is uh, actually just went into the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, two days ago here in the States. And, you know, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with, uh, you know, American sports or baseball, uh, you know, Derek was, you know, a legend uh, class on and off the field, one of the best yeah. players to ever do it. Uh, but it was quite ironic because, uh, you know, I think maybe a comparison when, uh, you know, people kind of found out that he was going to start this uh, media company uh, as he was retiring, it was a little bit shocking for people because he was notoriously kind of, uh, you know, uh, guarded uh, with his personal life and, you know, really guarded right. with the media. So, you know, I tell people all the time when I'm speaking to people in the UK or Europe, you know, uh, it would be a bit like, you know, somebody like a James Milner or something, you know, starting like a podcast yeah. network or, you know, something after after he retired. It was just sort of uh, it was something that uh, people were uh, pretty intrigued by and surprised by, but I think had a lot of questions. Um, but I think, you know, the the main driving force of and the mission uh, was pretty simple, which was that, you know, Derek thought from just his experience, uh, you know, as a player for you know 20 years that it was really, really hard for athletes to have a safe space where they felt like they could truly be themselves and tell their stories. Um, right. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, the media, I think, does a brilliant job. I mean, there's, you know, some incredible journalists that, you know, really do gain the trust of players, have, you know, broken incredible stories, have told backstories of players really, really well. But overall, as you know, and I'm we've seen in the last couple of years, the media landscape is very diverse, very large. There's not one kind of uh, sort of style or, you know, perspective in media, right? And so, um, you know, I think the, the main thing for Derek was that um, it was really open-ended. It was a blank page. He thought if we can get a company that was basically started by athletes um, and kind of give them the platform and to kind of give them the the uh you know space a trusted space to work with creative people who could help them uh, tell their stories you know whether that was you know through essays which i think you know we're, we're known quite widely for uh, but also in you know videos and documentaries and podcasts and so uh yeah that was really the impetus of the company and it was you know seven years ago now that we started this thing and uh you know i think uh yeah the to make a long story short, I think the idea was to give athletes a platform to, yeah, tell their own stories in, in their own way and in their own words. And, um, you know, I think it was met with uh, a, a lot of skepticism. And I, I'll be honest, I, I was one of the people, you know, when I found out about the project, I was one of the first people brought on uh, to the editorial team. I, uh, yeah, I had questions myself. Um, you know, how is this going to work? What are the athletes going to want to talk about? Is there really going to be an audience for this? Is this just going to be PR? Is this going to be marketing? 
Um, and I think, you know, uh, we, I think as a staff, and I think Derek deserves a lot of credit for this and the athletes who were some of the first people involved, I think they deserve a lot of credit that you know, I think the proof is really in the, in the pudding with the kind of stories that we put out. Uh, I think we've surprised a lot of people with the kind of depth of, uh, of, of storytelling and the topics that, that we've covered. So how, how would you describe that range of topics? One of the first things that um, became apparent. So when we first started speaking to the athletes about, you know, what they wanted the content to be, what do you want to talk about? What is your story? What's important to you that you're never asked about or you haven't been you know, comfortable with? Yeah. One of the first things that became clear was mental health. And this is a oh. thing now that I think you're seeing it talked about quite a lot. If you look at Naomi Osaka, if you look at, yeah. you know, Simone Biles, um, but if you go back, we, we were actually, um, you know, and it wasn't just us, but we were one of the first media companies, uh, you know, athlete led media companies to really dive into that. Um, so we broke a story all the way back in um, 2015, a couple months after we launched the Players Tribune uh, with a basketball player named uh, Larry Sanders. And Larry was, you know, one of the first players to come out. Uh, he had stepped away from the game in kind of the middle of his career. There were a lot of questions about why. There was a lot of rumors, what's going on, is there, you know, uh, and it was actually, you know, he was having severe mental health issues, panic attacks, depression, um, really debilitating. And he made a video with us kind of explaining that. And, you know, one of the first things that stick in my mind is in the first couple seconds of that video, what he says is something along the lines of, you know, hello, you know, I'm, I'm Larry Sanders. I'm a basketball player, but also, you know, an artist, a father, a son, a uh, on and on right and the yeah. message was i play basketball for a living and that, that's my passion but you know i'm also these other things and there's uh quite a complicated backstory to a lot of people and things that are going on that people don't know about and uh yeah. that was kind of one of the first ones and at the time to be honest it was you know this was 2015 the media landscape the sports landscape the social media landscape was quite different so people were really taken aback by this um that he was you know, I think that candid um, in the past, you would have athletes maybe step away and they would you know, their agents or their PR people would tell them, hey, just take a break. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Come. We'll, you'll come back in a year or we'll kind of explain it away with something. We'll say you were injured. And he had the courage to come out and say what was really going on. And um, yeah, I think that was one of the most important first stories that we, we ever did, because I think it set the tone uh, for what the ceiling for athlete first person storytelling could be do you approach the athletes or do they approach you or what's that process yeah that's a that's a great question um you know I, th I think it's changed throughout the years obviously when we were you know seven years ago when we were quite a new thing you know we were doing a lot of the outreach to athletes that we just thought had potentially really interesting stories or that were just really intriguing to us um and basically approaching them and saying hey you know would you be interested in talking to us and I think the important thing with us as well is, you know, obviously everything is um, everything is a trust game. It's it's all sort of in the athlete's hands. It's a collaboration. It's you know, we're not coming to them as uh, a magazine or something that has to have a cover story out in the next two months. Right. Um, and, you know, that's there's challenges with that. But that's also kind of the strength, I think, of what we do. And so when we reach out to an athlete, we it's just a conversation and we try to go in, especially, you know, our editorial team, a lot of us come from the traditional media world or have worked in that world. And um, there's immense value. Again, I can't stress that enough. Like we we are not trying to compete with that world at all, but we're just a completely separate lane. So 
when we reach out to someone like, you know, when we reached out to Raheem Sterling, for example, um, before the World Cup in 2018, we were just, there was a lot going on in, in the media. He was getting, I think, a lot of unfair treatment in the, let's say, you know, tabloid press or certain sections yeah. of the press in the UK. And we had heard, you know, and again, this is a little bit of our um, maybe strength as a brand, right? Because of our relationships in the athlete community, you know, you hear things like, hey, you know, Raheem's actually a really good guy. Like Raheem's one of my yeah. favorite people. And then your wheels start turning and you start thinking, okay, you know what? Let's reach out and see if maybe he wants to have a conversation because the person that we're hearing that he is is not matching up with this narrative. Yeah. And when we reached out, it was, you know, we, we didn't plan on speaking about, well, we, we always knew, of course, it would be great or a possibility if he would speak about those issues, right, and his treatment. But we want to keep it extremely open-ended because he may just want to talk about football or his, he may just want to talk about where he grew up or something like that. And so we sat down with him before the world cup and the conversation went in many directions. But I mean, I think the thing that really made an impact, um, especially in the UK is that his life and what he lived through with his father dying, with the way his mother took care of him and his sister, with the way that his own sister actually took care of him and would kind of ride along in the bus with him for like hours to take him to training. Um, I mean, he just had this incredible backstory and was such a funny, charismatic person. And honestly, a story like that, it can't really be dreamed up in a creative meeting and, you know, in an editorial meeting, yeah. because part of the point of the players tribune is that, or I think maybe the beauty of it is that we never quite know what we're getting into with these stories. You know, we're looking yeah. for the things that you can't Google or find out about if you look at the, if you look at the mainstream press or we're sort of trying to get those stories that maybe these athletes have only ever told their best friends or their confidants, right? Um, and of course, over the years, just to, I guess, fully answer your question, then, um, you know, the, the great thing is once we kind of established that trust in the athlete community, then we have had athletes actually reaching out to us with the types of stories that, again, we could never even think of or, or know about some of the things that they may want to speak about. A lot of times when you're dealing with those types of stories, when the athlete reaches out, they just want a conversation at first to kind of even put their thoughts kind of on tape or on the page and to kind of see how it feels and to think about it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's been an eye opening thing for me over the years. And I think what I'm really proud of and why I think, you know, this, this platform should exist is that, you know, when you're talking about something like that, it can be hard to kind of nail that on the first take, <laughs> you know, I think, I think, I think every writer is at, I mean, you know, we've all had that, right. And you're staring at the blank page in a sense, or you're staring at the blank recording of a podcast, you're staring into the camera and it's a complex topic. It's, it can be very daunting. Right. And so I think where we've been successful is we kind of, um, lend athletes that second, third, fourth take, we kind mm -hmm. of try to help them talk through some of these things and to, um, you know, put it on the page or on tape in a really compelling way um, and bring out certain things that maybe they're even having a hard time kind of yeah. articulating or bringing to the surface. So that, that content, such, such a crappy phrase, but content creation process is an interview and then an edit 
and then the athlete gets approval or gets to add stuff or you maybe do another interview and add some more is it like is that kind of iterative process this is probably the number one thing i get asked when you know i'm at a, a bar or something or speaking to a friend who is interested in what we do you know they're like well okay how does it work because obviously you know these athletes are busy. They're not just sitting down in a Word document and writing this stuff, right? And it's like, yes, of course, you know, that uh, these are some of the busiest people in the world, actually, which is another maybe misconception or, or thing that I didn't even know before kind of starting this job is that I think we have this idea or we hear these comments on social media like, oh, yeah, you know, these these, these men and women sit around and you know they, they get paid millions of dollars and they just play a sport and they, I mean, we all know anyone with experience in this industry. I mean, you know, they're, they're some of the most or the busiest, most structured people in the world at top level athletes. And so, you know, they time is something that's actually so valuable for us. And so that's a huge part of this. And so when when we're thinking about doing a piece of content, right, if we know that, number one, we say, what's the best format for this, right? Is it a video? Is this even something longer like a documentary? Is it a podcast? Is it something where we just maybe want to talk to this person like we're talking now and just kind of, yeah, sit around talking like friends? Maybe that could be very revealing, right? But if you think about we, we've been known for throughout the years is these sort of first person essays. That to me is um, something that there's no real one way that we do it. I think there's a way that we do it most of the time, but even that there's a lot of nuance in, but it always starts with in-depth conversation. So sometimes athletes send us uh, something that they've been working on, and that can be anything from a, a Word document or Google document, or even like a notes app with some stuff that they've tried to formulate about what they may want to say or write. Um, that can even be sometimes you know, like voice notes that they send us or whatever. And we so we may have something that, we're kind of working with at, at, at a start. Um, but like most of the time, we even recommend even before that, hey, let's let's just talk, right? Let's kind of figure out almost like, um, you know, almost like you would do if you're being, you know, if like a writer would be commissioned for a magazine piece, right? We all know that game. Like ideally, you, you actually sit down and you talk with your editor for a while about kind of the scope and what you're thinking and what might be interesting. And you kind of talk it out. And, and we try to take that same approach with athletes where, that first initial conversation, which I mean, can be anywhere from, you know, an hour to we've had, you know, marathon sessions where we end up speaking to an athlete for like four hours or, you know, yeah. sometimes even over multiple days, if depending <laughs> on what, you know, what happens, um, that's the basis. And then from there, our editorial team, uh, you know, does what, yeah, I think, you know, we do really well, which is to, how do you pare that down into something yeah. that's manageable for them to take to the athletes, then they can look at and then edit or, you know, they may even change it drastically. They may want to change the direction. They may say, wow, this is actually almost perfect, but we need to tweak this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Um, there's no real one way, but that's kind of the the main basis for it, I would say. What do you think the, the at the moment the split between kind of those essays in text is and, and then video and audio content? Are you moving more towards multimedia? Yeah, I think a big eye opener for us. Um, well, there was two things, but I think for the 2018 World Cup, um, the you know work we did in the football space, we took a little bit of a different approach for that because we knew that that's such a key moment, right? The, all yeah. eyes of the world are on this thing, and there's players from all these different countries. And so what we did for that was, you know, we tried to put a camera 
in the room every time we did one of these interviews about the stories. And it was a little bit easier because we had a, basically a theme for that package where we were kind of telling the origin stories of all these players who were involved in the World Cup. So we literally had, I think, I can't even remember the final total, but like we nearly hit every every country that participated. So all kinds of different languages and things, you know, uh, that we were dealing with. But we, we wanted a camera in the room to try to capture that so that we could have that multimedia element. And what was really cool with that is that, I don't know if you remember, but um, when Kolarov scored an amazing free kick during that tournament, we'd actually worked with Kolarov. And in the conversation, he tells this origin story about how he got so good at free kicks <laughs> with his left foot. And it actually ties in, of course, to his history and the war and how he yeah. would kick it against this fence all the time and he broke the fence. And I mean, literally, you know, it was perfect because then we have that multimedia clip where when he scored the free kick on social media, we basically put out, you know, he, here's sort of the origin story of this guy's incredible left foot and how it's yeah. actually connected to his identity and his home country <laughs> and his whole life. Right. And of course, throughout the years, we've done a lot of amazing video work where I would say more in the traditional um, video storytelling space. If you want an example of that that I always think about um, is Lamar Odom, who I think, you know, even, um, you know, I think in, in the UK, you may be familiar with because, um, you know, he had a relationship with, uh, you know, one of the Kardashians. He was sort of like on a reality yeah. TV star. But before that, he was a major, you know, NBA star with Kobe Bryant's Lakers, but had dealt with incredible things in his life, drug addiction, loss. And he did a video with us. If you search Players Tribune, Lamar Odom on YouTube. I'll just leave it to people to, to watch that because it was an incredibly raw, intimate, and I think unique uh, thing uh, that I think is one of the seminal moments in our history, actually, when you talk about what right. is the Players' Tribune and what the feel that, that wow. we're trying to give you. Um, that's definitely worth checking out. And then, you know, I think obviously podcasts as well over the years. You know, we have a podcast called Knuckleheads, um, which is very <laughs> popular uh, if for the NBA fans out there, uh, which, you know, is, is amazing because it's truly two cultural legends in the NBA. I mean, two guys, you know, Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson, for anyone who's, you know, probably under 30 years old, maybe isn't as familiar with them. But, you know, in, in the early 2000s were like the coolest thing in, in the NBA playing for the Clippers. And those guys just sit around and they just shoot the shit with, uh, yeah. you know, these their fellow NBA players, you know, legends, current players. And I mean, the vibe of that really is like, you know, it's not overproduced. It's just them yeah. kind of talking about what they would talk about if they were all sitting around at their house talking. Yeah, um, so it's a, it's a split at this point, really, it's probably pretty equal split between uh, video podcast and, and the essays. Um, and that's all been an outgrowth, I think, of, you know, the trust that we've built up uh, in the athlete community. How important is social to you, like social media distribution? I mean, it's so important at this point, right? I mean, uh, Twitter is such an important thing for us to drive awareness and mar marketing for our content. Obviously, Facebook is, you know, uh, I think challenging for publishers uh, overall. It's a little bit harder to understand what's going to be successful on Facebook, I think. But Twitter and Instagram, I think especially, I mean, we've seen uh, Instagram stories when athletes promote their content. Tim Sparv, the captain of uh, the Finland national team, just did a piece. The title was, you know, uh, we need to talk about Qatar. That piece was actually really supported by the athlete community, uh, which was great to see. And, you know, again, he doesn't have the biggest following, but, you know, we saw a tremendous amount of traffic coming from Instagram based on him 
kind of sharing that story and other footballers sharing it kind of speaks to our purpose, right? I mean, you know, we, we do a lot of great, you know, anecdotes and banter and kind of behind the scenes stories and stuff in our storytelling, which I think people love. But I think the, the deeper level is, you know, you have, um, I would say, one of the first major footballers kind of speaking out on the human rights issues uh, around this upcoming World Cup uh, in a really, in my opinion, you know, he walked the walk. I mean, this is not just him saying things that he thinks people want to hear. I mean, he's reached out to the migrant workers who've built those stadiums under some really terrible conditions. Uh, And he's walking the walk and is really trying to, you know, drive awareness for something that I think uh, a lot of people in the football world would love to just kind of be swept under the rug and to go away. (laughs) So with a story like that, to, to answer your question, right, social distribution, if we were just a website, right. And Tim Sparv, publishes an essay for us, it's tough to get that off the ground, right? I mean, you can try to do it with newsletter type marketing or something, but I mean, so much of the driver for that's going to be coming from the athletes kind of uh, social media channels. And then from the pickup, big shout out again to, you know, Sid Lowe and some of the people in the, you know, uh, journalism community and, you know, in Europe who helped to amplify that piece. Against that background, you know, that kind of social awareness, if you like, what's your commercial model? How does your commercial model work? with Derek Jeter sort of being one of the ones to, you know, found this company uh, and then also like, you know, getting athletes like Kobe Bryant, Danica Patrick, Blake Griffin, these kind of people involved from the start. We got a lot of patience from our initial investors to kind of, uh, well, one, build the trust, right. And and the credibility of this place in the first two years before trying to go into that commercial space too soon. We wanted to solidify our brand and what we stood for, right? So everything we talked about, mental health, social justice, deep storytelling, uh, I think an authenticity, which, you know, is a word that now we hear everyone saying, you know, authenticity now, you know, that was something that seven years ago, that was the main thing that we were kind of writing on the top of every page, right? Like this has to be authentic and real because we all knew if if it's fake, everyone's going to tell right away. To be honest, right, no one no one really wanted to like this little thing that we started. I mean, right, you have a bunch of very famous, very well-off athletes, you know, kind of putting their hands in to start this company. And I think there was a lot of skepticism about, you know, the authenticity and the, the, the nature of it. And so we had to prove that it was going to be worthwhile, worth your time and real. And I think once we did that, uh, you know, after those first two years, we established that credibility then we started to go to brands and especially brands that we thought you know, could could make sense and be decent partners for us and to say, hey, you know, if, if you like what we're doing and you're int- intrigued in these kind of spaces, I mean, mental health at the time, that wasn't really something that a lot of brands were spending money on. And now in 2021, you know, some of our biggest campaigns, American Family Insurance, um, I mean, they're hitting on these themes of identity, social justice, mental health. And they're putting their dollars behind that and their brand behind it and sponsoring storytelling in that space. And look, let's be honest, right? <laughs> it's a challenging space. I think every publisher would tell you that. Yeah. You know, you're, you, you, everyone says at the start, you all sit around in a room and, you know, you say that you want to just make something amazing and impactful. But of course, there's hurdles there. There's just uh, budgetary obstacles to doing that. There's brand obstacles. But I would say, I think the strength of, it is, you know, a lot of our revenue comes from brand partnerships that are, I think, really, really close to the kind of storytelling that we would want to do anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And the brands are really just, you know, helping to, you know, fund some of these stories that, you know, we would want to do anyways. We 
always ask our guests for a recommendation for you know media that they want to pass on to our listeners what would you recommend the first thing that comes to mind uh i'll give a little shout out to uh yeah to a good friend uh of ours at the player tribune someone who used to be on our team uh who's now at the athletic carl anka who um i'm sure a lot of your listeners know from twitter or from his work but you know to me carl uh did one of the best jobs I've ever seen covering the Euros. Uh, and obviously he covers Manchester United primarily for the athletic, but just in terms of, you know, as a football fan in the, in the States and, you know, my media diet is maybe a little bit unique, but the work that he's doing and uh, just day to day covering United, but also just covering uh, the Premier League and football in general, I think he's one of the best uh, young journalists uh, in the world right now. Uh, he's also a great Twitter follower as well. He was always making me laugh. And if you haven't had enough media voices for the day, we do have a daily newsletter which brings you four most important stories in publishing and media. You can sign up on our website, voices.media, which also contains an archive of everything we've ever done, or now from your Twitter profile. <laughs> or now... Yeah. Or now from our Twitter profile in a one and done, easy, easy click. Uh, Apparently now, if you haven't subscribed, you can sign up directly from our tweets. Mm-hmm. Which is a fun one as well. So that's review making its play for, you know what, that's its, that's its own media story. Uh, you can sign up to that by going to <laughs> at Media Voices Pod or by going to one of our tweets. And if you really love this, really, really love this, get over to Coffee because we've got a monthly subscription option over there. If you'd like to support us for the next 200 episodes that we're doing, because last time was 200, right? Yeah. Get over to voices.media slash support. And yeah, join the club, as it were. And speaking of joining clubs, you could join the exclusive list of winners of the Publisher Podcast Awards. So the Publisher Podcast Award entries are now open until December the 10th. We recently published a sort of, I suppose, primer in what we're looking for and what the judges are looking for. You can find that and you can find everything you need to enter by going to publisherpodcastawards.com. We're delighted by the quality of entries we already had this year, so we are looking forward to seeing who else gets them in. Get them in. But until next week, when we'll be back with Esther, a fantastic guest, and another tour through all the news and views from the media world, thank you very much for listening, and do stay safe. Bye.